This is episode 651 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. On today's podcast, I have a special interview with Ben Davidson of Suspicious Observers. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is usually an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website. But from time to time, I interview members of the preparedness community who can bring a ton of value and information to your preparedness. Links for this podcast can be found in the show notes or on theprepperwebsitepodcast.com. Hey, this episode is sponsored by the exclusive Prepper Website email group, which allows you to communicate with other preppers right from your email. You don't have to worry about your every link, click, or word being tracked by social media. This email group resides on the same servers as Prepper Website, so you know you can trust it. Other benefits include members-only videos, periodic webinars, and online meetups. This is a great value for $20 a year. For more information, visit PrepperWebsite.net or click the link in the show notes. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Prepper Website Podcast. I'm so glad that you are here. Listen, this episode is one for the books. Before we jump into the interview though, I want to just give a a couple of shouts out to some reviews that we received. It's always a big blessing. And so thank you so much for these. Um, This first one, and I'm not even sure if the whole name goes together. Why? ZenFemD? I I don't think so. I don't think it all goes together. But uh, if I got that wrong, I I apologize greatly. Um, The review says, I love this podcast. Practical advice is presented without gloom and doom or politics. This is the same kind of advice that you'd get from your depression error or World War II surviving grandparents. A lot of this used to be common knowledge, but has been lost over the generations as we have become accustomed to our click it and ship it on-demand society. Some have complained about the format of reading articles, but I love that it gives the podcast structure compared to others that may wander or rehash the same topics. Well, thanks so much for that review. Uh, I'm just going to say why. I'll just leave it at that. Why? Thanks. Why? Um, you know, sometimes when I was reading it in gloom and doom, you know, sometimes I feel like I do do the gloom and doom. And I said do do, right? I do gloom and doom. But sometimes I guess other people's perception of gloom and doom could, could be different. Uh, other people, when they think about gloom and doom, they think of like the Alex Jones, right? And, you know, hey, the turtles are growing a fifth leg and, and all that kind of stuff. It's the end of the world. Um, you know, sometimes sometimes I feel like I'm a little too gloomy or too doomy. I get, I get, I'm rhyming today. But, um, you know, I understand other people have other views of that. You know, sometimes there's, there's uh, people that are doing stuff out there online that everything they see, everything they, they hear is like the, it's the end of the world. So uh, definitely not not that. So I appreciate that. But I do ta- I do want to say this that I do talk about politics. Politics is a very important part of preparedness because the politicians are making laws and making you know decisions that affect us all the way through, and that can affect our preparedness. In fact, a lot of the the issues that we're facing right now can be attributed to politicians making bad decisions. So don't discount politics. We need to understand politics. I know it gets very heated sometimes with the right and left and Democrat and Republican and all that kind of stuff, but you you still need to be aware of that and keep that in mind. But again, I want to say uh, thank you for this review. I greatly appreciate it. All right. The next review comes to us from OWJFBSS. All right. So uh, just a short one. It says, love the podcast. Always have good topics and good advice. Straight to the point, yet entertaining. I don't have time to read articles, but here I can listen to them on the go. And the interviews are a plus. Keep it up. All right. 
Thanks so much, OW, for that one. And you are right. The uh, the interviews are a big plus. And so, uh, again, guys, thank you so much for the reviews. It's a real big blessing when I see those come through. It's, it's really like the highlight of my day, right? So I greatly appreciate that. Speaking of interviews, we have a great interview lined up for you. Um, ben Davidson of Suspicious Observers. Now, if you're not familiar with Ben, Ben does a, uh, he has a YouTube channel where he talks about space weather and how space weather affects us here on Earth. And it's very interesting, a lot of good stuff. So he, he does a lot of work out there in the science community. But uh, one of the things that he does that I've always paid attention to is his daily update. So many of us, when we are still in REM sleep, Ben is up checking all his uh, information, all the things that are out there that give him information about space weather. And he is creating his six to seven minute update that he puts out on YouTube every single day. And he puts it out there for us to stay informed of what is going on. So I've been listening to him for a very long time. I've been sharing out his stuff for a very long time. And you can imagine when I got the opportunity to interview him, I had all these different things that I wanted to, to, to ask him about. Not only space weather and how it affects our health and, and uh, how it affects the earth and, of course, solar flares and all that kind of stuff. But there were there's two main things that I really wanted to talk to him about. One, there was an update that was burned in my mind, and uh, he reminded me it was about three years ago. I didn't realize it was that long ago, but I brought that up, and we got to talk about that. So imagine uh, an interview or an update that he gave that was uh, that kind of burned in my mind that was so long ago, and I got to ask him. He, he got to talk to me about that one, and, and quite frankly, he remembers that one as well. So the other thing that I really wanted to talk to him about was a video that he put out. So he does his, his daily updates, but he also does other videos, longer length, about different uh, topics that are out there. And he did a video called The Next End of the World. And again, that was one that's been burned on my, on my mind for a while. I wanted to ask him about that. It's going to be very interesting. You're going to just, I, I, you're going to be like sucked into it, right? So I'm going to provide a lot of links for you so that you can go check out his stuff. He is a good guy, a lot of great information, but uh, I, I love the fact that he was uh, took his time to be able to share with us some of this great information. It's really great science, and uh, it's, just, it's going to be a great interview and entertaining as well. So without further ado, let me stop yapping, and let's go ahead and get to the interview with Ben Davidson of Suspicious Observers. Hey, Ben, welcome to the Prepper Website Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Hey, so let's let's start off with this question here. And I normally ask I ask those that I'm interviewing to tell me a little bit about themselves. But before we even get into that, I want to ask you, what in the heck is space weather? Sure. So space weather would be uh, the space environment conditions through which the Earth is going here in its orbit around the sun. And so whether that's the different kinds of light, you know, we know about ultraviolet light affecting our skin, visible light from the sun. It includes x-rays and infrared and, and all the different kinds of light that there are uh, and that are emitted by the sun. But it also includes uh, the little charged particles that many people didn't like working with in chemistry class back in, uh, back in high school or college. Uh, the sun emits protons, electrons, and some of the even larger 
ions like ionized hydrogen, helium, things like that. And it does so in the solar wind in all directions, 24 hours a day. And we're basically orbiting the sun through this electric field of solar wind. And so the light conditions, the particle conditions, this is what we look at. And this is what space weather is all about, how that interacts with our planet. Wow. So then with all of that said, Tell us a little bit about yourself and how does someone get involved with space weather, the sun, and you know, all the instruments that you, you use uh, every day on your, your daily broadcast? Sure. So um, the short version of the story is I wanted to be a weatherman when I went to, to college. Uh, I was taking the chemistry. I was taking the physics. I was taking a lot of the meteorology classes. And halfway through, uh, when I was insisting that we start updating uh, some of the things we were doing in classes based on what were, you know, well-publicized updates to the science and journals and major models and even things that were making major news on the Weather Channel and things like that. And the professor who was too in love with himself and the textbook that he had written, which we were required to purchase and use in his class, uh, he didn't like this idea at all. A lot of the new things came uh, coming out challenged him. Uh, I was challenging him on that. And uh, he basically suggested I find a different major. And so I stepped away from science altogether for a while. I ended up getting an economics degree, a law degree, but while I was getting the law degree, I quickly figured out I never wanted to be a lawyer. Luckily, law school is one of the last places in the world that can teach you how to think uh, and how to structure arguments and how to do complex analysis of things that uh, you need to learn really quickly. And so I turned that into working as a research analyst for an equity firm doing investments. And they wanted to invest in a lot of things that had me relearn or get back into science. I quickly learned that I was pretty good at this and that I wanted to do what I did for a living uh, with things that I was actually interested in. Started a YouTube channel and here's where I got very lucky. Because those things I was interested in were the sun, space weather. It's a brand new science. Some of the satellites that show us the sun are incredible. Uh, it's the weather, things like that. I still, in my heart, wish a little bit sometimes I had been a weatherman. Uh, and also earthquakes and volcanoes. And the reason why that's lucky is because it's quite clear nobody had ever looked at all of those things daily, uh, you know, day after day after day, because once you do that, the patterns between what the sun does and what the weather and earthquakes and volcanoes on earth does uh, do, uh, it, it, they're very obvious. In fact, um, there are some programs we have for middle school classes uh, where they actually go through and they have the kids pick out these major events on the sun, and then they show major earthquakes on earth. And it's, it's that easy to pick out, which is why I say, you know, this wasn't some uh, grand, brilliant scheme I had. It was just uh, the, right, the right interests at the right time and the right technology, which literally did not exist in the slightest degree before 2010. Uh, and so literally, it's, it was the right luck and the right time. Yeah, every, everything converged at the right time for you. That's, that's great. Exactly, yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm interested then because you're talking about patterns in, in the weather and you're also coming from economics. One of the guys that I, I read his blog on a regular basis and talk about him on the, on the podcast is Martin Armstrong, who talks about Armstrong uh, economics, Armstrong, definitely who talks about the cycles and stuff like that. So are, are you one that looks at the world completely in cycles and that what has happened, we can get an idea because it's going to be coming around again and again? Uh, yes, very much so. Um, 
there's it, it's tough to get into because um, especially for somebody like me, you have to fight your own ego and unlearn a lot of what you've learned and realize that holy cow, I don't know anything. I'm a lot I'm a lot less wise than I than I thought I was, and uh, these patterns are very very real. Um, their control on the stock market and other things like that is very real as well. Well, I would say that uh, Martin's workload on that front uh, outnumbers mine about 10,000 to one. Um, there are a few tiny things that uh, could really only be um, put together as a puzzle recently that uh, I think could actually take the thing to a whole new level to the point where um, people acting on these things takes away all reality in the stock market. Um, it's kind of a dangerous concept, actually. So if everybody is reacting to earthquakes or electric signals in space or what kind of light the sun is giving off and nobody's listening to the, the annual reports or the quarterly reports, they're just like, nope, when, when the energy does this, people tend to do this. And um, it, it has the power to really change the way things work. And I'm kind of actually surprised that it hasn't happened yet because the information's there. Yeah, and it's very interesting when you start looking at that. I mean, you know, he gets a lot of emails uh, on, hey, you know, you, you were talking about this before and here it goes, it's happened and all that kind of stuff. And so just with your economic background and uh, talking about cycles and all that, I just thought that was interesting to be able to bring all that together. So uh, re really cool. So tell us a little bit about why space weather. I mean, we... I live in Houston, you know, it is so stinking hot right now. We're watching the, I'm watching the weather just so that we can get a little break and uh, get a little bit of rain. I mean, that's what we're, you know, we're, we're clamoring for over here. Right, so right. we know, we know what weather is, but why and why that's important, but why is space weather important to know? Why is that important for us? Sure. So, um, they are finding out that the sun actually affects everything from, minute-by-minute minute weather to long-term climate cycles. It does affect earthquakes. It affects volcanoes. It affects human health as well. It affects our technology. And the reason why it is able to affect those four things, you know, the atmosphere, earthquakes and volcanoes, the, the crust, our, our health and our technology, is because all of these things are essentially, at heart, electromagnetic. You know, the atmosphere is, it has electricity running through it, not just um, at different altitudes, but up and down through what they call the global electric circuit. When it's sunny, fair weather, high pressure, there's actually electric current coming down from the, from the sky and building on different uh, atmospheric layers and building onto the ground. When there's lightning, when there's low pressure, that energy goes back up. It's a circuit that runs through the atmosphere. And the primary component involved in weather is water vapor, and water vapor is very, very attracted to electricity, and it, it moves a lot with it. Uh, dust as well, which plays a, a large role in cloud production and cloud opacity and things like that. When it comes to the ground, there's tons of iron, tons of crystals, olivine, and water, again, uh, in the crust and in the, in the plates that subduct and go under uh, another one. These things are very reactive to these electromagnetic changes as well. I just did a, a video not long ago where I was showing that you can actually, if the electric current is right above, the water in the ground can actually push up 
push against gravity and start pushing up on the ground. And so this can be recreated in a simple lab experiment. It's, it's, it's very easy to see. And, you know, our hearts put out more electricity than our, than our, ner than our nervous system and, and our brains. Uh, we are electromagnetic beings. The number of things in our body that are based on potassium or magnesium ions, charged versions, electromagnetically charged versions, uh, moving in certain pathways and doing certain things in our bodies, it's paramount to nearly every biological process that keeps us alive every single day, which is why that when we have major events in space, whether they notice correlations with heart attacks, with strokes, with uh, anxiety and uh, hospitalizable depression because it messes with the locus ceruleus and your ability to handle anxiety, panic, and fear. And obviously, when we're talking about all this electromagnetism stuff, our technology is all electromagnetic, which is why they notice the correlations there too. And so they're starting to realize that this is actually something that's playing a role. It's got its hands in everything. Uh, and it can't be ignored in terms of the future of science and predicting what has been thus far the unpredictable. And uh, especially as Earth's interface with this energy from the sun called the magnetic field, the magnetosphere of our planet, it's changing. I don't know how much you're familiar with the ongoing magnetic reversal or pole shift that's taking place on the planet, but um, it's approaching the scary point right now. And one of the aspects of that scariness is the fact that this is our shield against space weather. And so the sun and space energies are going to start to have more and more of an effect over our day-to-day -day life and literally everything around us. Well, anything that I know about pole shifting is <laughs> the pole shifter is because there's been articles in the preparedness community that people have written. And that's really, to be honest with you, that's something that I've kind of kept away over here. But then I hear you talking about some of those kinds of things. Can you tell us a little bit about what we could experience maybe in the future, in the near future, if this, this is happening and our magnetic field is weakening? Sure. So um, the question was about what we should expect to happen. So if you, see, if you watch the first 20, 30 minutes of the movie The Core, they do a pretty good job. With that, that's the one where, where the core of the earth stops spinning and they've got to take that thing down to the core of the earth and restart it with nuclear bombs. Once they get in that thing, everything sort of goes to science fiction in the movie. But everything up to that point is actually pretty darn good. Um, super lightning storms, completely ridiculous wind storms, um, major effects on earthquakes and volcanoes as well, major shift in climate, um, major shifts in believe it or not, the overall emotional stability of the species, major migratory shifts that begin to knock out parts of the food chain that, you know, maybe we don't see them that day. We see them a year later or four years later, something like that. Um, they were even discovering that uh, it's not just birds and some insects. Many fish and mammals even use the magnetic fields for day-to-day -day activities. And so a lot of life gets disrupted. It's the kind of thing where most of the people who look into it agree there is no way that modern civilization exists once this has occurred. Everything will collapse and we've basically got to try to do our best to rebuild with what's left, but it may be a go back to the starting block um, and see how fast you can get to the Bronze Age this time. Wow. Kind of situation. 
one of the good things is that, you know i remember listening to someone say that at least we have the knowledge you know we're not we're not having to build on knowledge that we don't know if, if something like that was to happen <laughs> but uh, yeah man that that is uh that is scary and I'm, i have a question a little bit later on to, to ask you maybe we can go into a little bit further uh on that but you you mentioned uh the effects of health and you know right. i, I I have the disaster app, right? The the suspicious observer, the disaster app on my on my phone, and every once in a while, I'll get the uh, the notification, the cosmic ray alert, uh, see the health alerts page. So um, you've already kind of alluded to it, but if you can talk a little bit more about it, I think that's very interesting. Are you saying the sun is tied, uh, the sun in space weather and uh, the mag magnetic field, um, all of that is tied to our health and wellness. Uh, more than just you know the sun providing warmth and and okay. heat and energy for us. Sure, absolutely. And with this, it's um, it's not uh, an absolute magnitude kind of thing. It's one of those things where equilibrium is wonderful. So you need oxygen to survive, right? Mm -hmm. Oxygen is also the thing that helps your cells look older. It's what causes you to age. Um, the reason why antioxidants are a good thing is because once your body has used that oxygen, it's not exactly great to have it flowing around. It's corrosive. Oxygen is horrendously corrosive to your body. Water, you need water to survive. But how much water? Is there too much water? Yeah, I'll put you at the bottom of a lake and see if there's too much water on there. You know, you're in big trouble if you find yourself at the bottom of a lake or the ocean or something. That same kind of idea. And so while recently, the majority of the space weather health alerts have been cosmic rays. It is true that when there's major solar flares, major geomagnetic storms, the same level of health alert actually does exist. But what's actually happening here is we're noticing a lack of equilibrium when there's only uh, a little bit of solar activity or basically your average. We're sort of there in the middle. But when that drops out, we get too many cosmic rays from the rest of the galaxy because the sun isn't pushing back with its electromagnetic power. And when the sun is really active, it's pushing with its electromagnetic power. And then you start to get magnetic fields, electric currents, and direct charged particle bombardment of the human body. And when it comes to the cosmic rays, this is a little different than when it's a geomagnetic storm or a solar flare. The cosmic rays have neutron components that can actually break DNA and cause mutations, cause cancer on the spot. Um, they are some of the things that can affect the hippocampus and affect your ability to think logically. Uh, they call it cognitive diminution. You basically have a, uh, you know, a, a diminutized cognitive ability. And the same thing that causes that emotional instability that I mentioned earlier and the thing with the locus ceruleus that causes your inability to deal with panic, fear, and anxiety. Um, when it's the sun, it's a little bit more of the magnetic fields uh, affecting and the electric currents, and that's when you see more of the effects on the heart, uh, more effects of stroke, more of the autoimmune disease flare-ups, especially if it's something in the epidermis. We do see a ton of that when you've got some kind of recurrent thing that happens with your skin. If you've got such a condition, those can be intimately tied to space weather. Multiple sclerosis as well, and a number of other conditions that you'd say, wow, I never would have even thought to think this way about that condition. Um, lupus, Parkinson's, things like that. Um, and pretty much every mental health disorder that they know of uh, is affected by this because these are all biological electromagnetic processes. Those same 
things I was mentioning before, the rationale for why. Because we are an electromagnetic system between the brain and the heart. That's a ton of electricity. And in every single cell, their exchanging of everything is based on electric charge, positive or negative, every single thing. And so it's really not hard when you begin to think of it that way to see, wow, why do these things affect us? Well, because that's what we are. These things are basically just the building blocks and the processes that make up what we are, what life is. And so. How, how new of a science is this? Because I, I remember bringing this up with someone. Uh, I, I'd received a health alert and someone who is a pretty smart person and I brought it up and they just, they looked at me like I was, you know, talking science fiction here. So, um, Maybe 10 years ago, that could have been an excusable thing because most of the studies were just statistically based and they were out of Russia or other parts of Europe. It would say, look, we have the stats here. We noticed these kinds of things happening in the hospital or otherwise, and they published them over and over. And it was pretty convincing, but nobody had gone into the mechanisms. Nobody had studied, you know, what if we blast mice with cosmic rays here in the lab? See, see if the same kind of thing happens to them. They are now starting to do that, and we are probably past the point now where somebody could say that the peer-reviewed literature and very well-respected journals doesn't exist. It exists to a considerable degree, and uh, a lot of it comes out of NASA, actually. The, I mentioned earlier the, the thing about the mammals that rely on the magnetic field. They did a huge study on gray whales beaching themselves uh, in Australia and New Zealand during geomagnetic storms. And you know, if you want to sit there and say, oh, well, um, NASA doesn't know what they're talking about or these professors, you know, shouldn't be listened to. All right. Who do you think we should listen to that? You know, um, especially because they confirm perfectly with the statistical correlations that the Russians were finding a few decades ago and which really didn't gain traction because everything had to be blamed on capitalism and American influence and the notion that these natural processes were causing these things was not something that was favored in the Russian government at the time. And so it didn't really pick up uh, until a number of researchers uh, in Europe and the United States came back to it about 15, 20 years ago, maybe. I think it was really 2002 was the benchmark year where this really took off uh, in the Western science world. You know, it, this is curious. I'm, I'm wondering, when you talk about that equilibrium, has there ever been a time in history where we can maybe go back and look at, hey, this was um, a really great time of equilibrium and every things, you know, things in the world were peaceful versus we, we look at, you know, we had an extra amount of, you know, cosmic rays coming through or, or, or whatever it was. And we see things spinning up and we see people, you know, I don't know the things that we see in, in the United States right now. Um, really, we're seeing it all over the world, but you know, the protests and, and, and riots and different things like that. Uh, can we look back and say, hey, this was a real, uh, you know, a real equal time here and there was, relatively, there was relative peace in, in, in society? Absolutely. So um, I don't imagine a thousand years ago that some of these health correlations were as strong as they are now. We are not as healthy of a people we poison ourselves basically from the moment we can make decisions. Uh, a lot of us get poisoned by our parents before that. Um, and, you know, from the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, it's everywhere. And these things play a role in increasing our vulnerability now. But 
looking back over time, um, because you still have that stability in the weather and earthquakes and other things like that, it's actually the periods of you know, the long periods of what we call grand solar maximum activity. Now, you might wait, think to yourself, now, wait a minute, Ben, that sounds like the high end of the scale, and don't we want the equilibrium? Well, that scale is really based on a short-term period, and that scale is based more on event relative to ambient conditions. So if things are very, very quiet for weeks and weeks, and all of a sudden you get a mid-level solar flare, just right in the middle of the road. It can actually be as effective on some of these things as if you're in the middle of a raging sunspot fury on the sun, and then it unleashes something a little bit bigger than it has the past few days. Even if that's a hundred times bigger than that mid-range one I talked about, maybe it doesn't represent that much larger of a change to your ambient conditions that you've been experiencing. And so, um, when you actually have those periods of grand solar maximum, and what that means is for decades and decades, you get higher numbers of sunspots, higher production of ultraviolet light. The ambient level is pretty stable, and it stays there, and so we don't drop down below there, and even the strong events don't push the chart up that much. And so, believe it or not, the 1900s, from about 1940 to the year 2000, was one of those periods of extreme stability. Uh, I think it's one of the reasons why we were able to change the world as a species the way that we have over the last century. Uh, before that, you pretty much have to go back to the um, 1400s or 1500s, um, but really, um, that was a, a minor one. It's been thousands of years since we had a stability period like we just had. That's that's so interesting. And when, yeah, you, go, when, you, man, when you go back and you look at that and... Uh, it, it starts to get you to, to think about where we're, where we're headed and, and right. all that stuff that that, that means. So um, I got to tell you, there was, uh, I, I can't remember how far back it was, maybe about three or four years ago in one of your daily videos, uh, there was uh, a solar flare that, that, that popped off and, and you said something to the effect that if this was more earth facing, that you would be headed to, the uh to the grocery store to stock up right and, and so i can't remember how long ago that was so I, are, are you thinking this was more 2012 or 2017 i, I probably more 2017 okay yeah, that was september 9th 2017 very much remember that day i'm not, not gonna forget that day um the sun unleashed a couple uh, a couple of events that would have <laughs> we wouldn't be on Zoom right now. We wouldn't be having a conversation. Uh, essentially, just before the sunspot left the earth-facing half of the sun as the sun was turning, um, it unleashed a very powerful solar flare. Now, if you can imagine, just as it's almost rotated out of view, it fired off pretty much 90 degrees away from us. Now, we still took a very slight glancing impact from that. But if we had taken direct impact from that, it would have been a major geomagnetic storm. Now, the real problem came about 24 hours later when an even bigger event happened after the sunspot had actually gone over to the other half. But it was so big, we could actually see the energy. We saw it blast out uh, an even bigger event. And there's absolutely no way that we would have been able to handle those consecutive impacts if it had been 
seven, 10 days earlier and those sunspots were facing Earth uh, when they did that, there is no chance we would have any electricity. Every copper wire on the planet would have melted. Uh, we would have had major ozone destruction. We would have had the first 30 minutes of the core, basically, plus earthquakes and volcanoes. <laughs> Man, all right. So, like, we dodged it right there. So, oh, yeah. all right. So my, my audience is not going to forgive me if I don't ask about solar flares and CMEs sure. and all that kind of stuff. So can you, uh, and, and I know that's the sexy stuff of the preparedness, right? I, I know in, in uh, the articles that I post on Prepper website that if I post something about an EMP or solar flares or bug out, I, I know the topics that are going to get people interested and they're going to click on the links. So I, I know this is a big deal. People want to know about it. So can you talk to, talk to us a little bit about what exactly is a solar flare and the differences between a solar flare and a CME? Sure. So sunspots are those little black things you may or may not have seen on the sun. You could probably just Google sunspots and find, uh, find what it is or DuckDuckGo or Yahoo, whatever you use to search the internet. And essentially what those are, there are places where there are magnetic fields pushing that charged material once again. We'll just call it plasma, positive or negatively charged material. And at sunspots, those areas and magnetic fields are very strong and sometimes they collide. And when that's happening, these particles are already traveling at close to the speed of light. And all of a sudden they can hit something, hit a magnetic field, and all of a sudden in an instant be going the other direction in almost the speed of light. These accelerations, decelerations, cause them to emit x-rays. It's a powerful x-ray explosion, and the big ones can be the size of Earth, the size of Jupiter, just of x-rays exploding. And this causes the plasma that's above it, because the atmosphere of the sun isn't like the air we breathe here. It's all those charged particles. Well, that strong energetic event blasts the material out. It's not very much different than a piece of dynamite under an inch of soil. Uh, there, it's all kinetic forces. The kinetic boom of the blast sends the dynamite uh, pieces and the dirt up and out flying. Well, from an electromagnetic perspective, it's the same thing. And so there's two components to a major space weather event. There's that flash of x-rays, which go out through the solar system. And then there's all the charged particles, that would be the protons, the electrons that were floating above it in the atmosphere of the sun, that then get blasted out into space. And when I said that blasted out, I'm glad that didn't hit us. That's what I was glad didn't hit us. Um, those particles that actually make up the solar wind, which got enhanced like crazy because of the solar flare, got energized to much higher levels than normal. Uh, those would have taken a very serious toll on the electromagnetic system of Earth and all of the electromagnetic things inside of it. Wow. Okay. So I guess you've answered the question if we should ever be concerned about it. And it's one of those things that I guess looking, we can continue to look at the sun. We've got people like you that are looking at the sun every single day. Would we have time or how much time would we have? if there was something like what happened September 9th, I think you said 2017, uh, if something like that was earth facing, how much time would we have before things went crazy and we started seeing everything, you know, go down here? Well, um, the solar flare itself 
would probably, you know, presuming, and I'm going to presume that you've got the disaster prediction app. And so you've got the real time alert that the solar flare has happened uh, and something like that. Um, you'd probably get, a, would like to say about 24 hours warning. It could be less though. Um, and, we, and when we say that, or we're talking about, we're starting to see some effects or we're starting to see the, the, like the, the grid go down and we're starting to see all the other, you know, the earthquakes, we're starting to feel those or, you know, to what degree does it, does it slowly ramp up or is it all one big hit and then everything starts going crazy? So um, the pressure cells, including the tropical systems like cyclones, hurricanes, those take immediate effect. The technology and our health take immediate effect. The effect on earthquakes and volcanoes seems to be delayed a few days as the energy is induced into the planet. And then it's not during the capacitance, the charging up, it's during the discharge phase uh, when we tend to see those earthquakes and the volcanoes more often. Um, it's one of the reasons why you see so much lightning when it comes to uh, volcanic activity. They, by the way, recently proved that even when it, uh, there are ashless eruptions, so there's no friction, there's still lightning. So they're, they're wondering where that electricity comes from, some of them. Those who study the global electric circuit don't wonder so much where that electricity comes from. But, um, you know, in terms of when we're talking about the real big one, that could that really could be, uh, you know, 12 to 24 hours away after the flare. Um, there is no telling how fast the satellites are going to go down, how fast the uh, the power grids would go down. It is possible that the flare itself could start a chain reaction that would make, um, that could drop most of the power grids on the planet before that actual wave arrives. Um, but probably not for at least a number of minutes, definitely not long enough to stop you from getting that alert on your phone before your phone stopped working. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the kind of thing where we hope it doesn't happen. And unfortunately, with Earth's magnetic field changing the way it is, part of the ongoing pole shift is it's weakening. Uh, it's not just that the magnetic poles are shifting, but we're down about 20% in strength from what we were just a couple of centuries ago. This loss of field strength seems to be accelerating, which basically means it's going to take less and less of a blast from the sun. So you, you take what you know, if we could have such knowledge to know exactly what it would take on the sun to send us back to the Stone Age, whatever that answer was 30 years ago, it's somewhere a little lower now. And it's getting a little lower every single day. And, you know, it's been nice the last three or four years here in sunspot minimum, basically since September of 2017, the flare you remember, sun has really not done much at all. Of course, it goes up and down in an 11-year cycle, and we've been in that down trough for the last three years. We are starting, we're basically literally at the foothills, like you're standing there with your backpack and your boots, like, okay, let's do this. Uh, and the sun's getting ready to charge up again. We do expect a number of solar flares. I've gauged the chances, given the current magnetic field state and what the sun is expected to do over the next five to seven years, we're at about a 25% chance of losing it all and actually getting sent back to the Stone Age here. I do think that is going to happen when the magnetic reversal occurs. That is going to be this century, um, but it could be accelerated if the sun decides uh, it wants to see the party get started a little early, so to speak.
Gotcha. Well, you've been talking a little bit about this magnetic reversal. And right. in December 2018, you released a video. I remember watching it going, wow. Uh, it was called The New End of the World. And I'm going to link to it in the uh, uh, in, in the description of the video. So anyone can go over there and, and watch it. Can you tell us a little bit about that video and uh, some of the findings and what got you so interested in it? Sure. Well, that video is part one of a 45-part uh, series. There's also a full movie uh, for those who didn't want to watch all, all the episodes, and we've come back to it with about five or six follow-up episodes as well. Essentially, I've always been interested in catastrophism, and not only the concept of the cyclical disaster on the planet, but with how it was seemed to have made to disappear just like that over the span of about a decade. Uh, in the middle of the 1900s. And we got a new piece of evidence um, in 2018 that really sort of changed things and it reignited passions and it framed perspective in a way that caused my own research and a number of others to go about this in a different way. The fact that I'm a different kind of researcher to begin with uh, rather than your standard super specialized and focused academic um, helped as well. This really does require a renaissance-like interdisciplinary thinking, which is what I was trained for. This is what I did for a living before starting this. And essentially, what we found is that at most conservative, I could say every 10 to 15,000 years, there is this major event on the planet. We can pick out the last couple that have happened we can pick out extinctions, climate changes, uh, and other things that are tied to it. Uh, we can pick out very strong evidence that these magnetic changes were happening at the time and that they were the likely cause of these events. Uh, but we also see a lot of evidence that we don't really understand so well, like there seemed to be um, evidence of increased uh, impactors from asteroids during these times. And that doesn't seem to make sense. Why would they time up at the same time? They can't have anything to do with causing the magnetic field to change. We see isotopes in the bones of animals that were destroyed during the event or trees uh, or even in some crystals that suggest that they were produced in a supernova or some type of stellar nova event at the time. And so we've basically taken this uh, and combined a couple of different fields of catastrophism because there were a number of very, very serious astrophysicists publishing in science, publishing in nature, you know, 70, 80 years ago, suggesting that the sun was actually causing these major events. And the fact that that never linked up with the geophysical side, which was made famous by uh, Einstein's linking up with Charles Hapgood, who's the guy who invented crustal displacement theory. Um, their never linking up was what caused their theories never to actually be able to be proven and caused the deficiencies to eventually be rooted out, shown for what they were. And it basically collapsed the whole science before they ever got a chance to come together. Now, part of that is bad luck in the science realm. Another part of it is what I think is a pretty clear obfuscation, if not straight cover-up of this science by the CIA. And it's clear that they did this in a number of ways. I'm not sure if this is something your audience would be interested in hearing or, or not. No, def definitely, I think, I think it's very interesting. I mean, it's one of those things that when, when I was watching it the very first time, I'm like, wow, that is 
so interesting. And I understand why they would want to cover it up. I mean, you talk about it in the video, but yeah, no, I, I, I know the, the audience would love to hear you already well, hooked, you already hooked them. You got You got to keep going. <laughs> so here's the thing. So it is not a secret and it is well known that Albert Einstein was working with Charles Hapgood, the earth crust displacement guy in the last few years of Einstein's life. Einstein's dying um, question, which he never got answered was, what causes the earth to flip over periodically? It was not, does the earth flip over? It was, all right, we have all the evidence that the earth literally flips over, that we go through these cataclysms on the planet. His question was, what causes it? Now, he died before Hapgood ever published anything. And all that was really done was used a foreword by Albert Einstein. They touted that as much as they touted the, the book itself, just to be like, Einstein, Einstein, Einstein. That's one of the ways that they were able to get um, the entire field of catastrophism focused into one area. Now, you say, well, what do you mean they? Charles Hapgood wasn't just some professor. He wasn't just some author. He was a member of the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which then became the CIA. He was one of the people who created the CIA, and he was still working as a CIA agent while he was parading around as a professor, putting out what ended up being a preposterous version of the, of the catastrophe cycle. His version of Earth's crust displacement easily debunked. Um, and so it, with the power of Einstein, took down the entire field because it garnered all the attention. Everyone put their eyes towards where Einstein was. Then they took a good look at the science and they realized this is nonsense. And everything collapsed when that umbrella folded. Everything completely. But the thing is, yeah, the CIA had that in input in making that occur. And so the question is, well, were they doing their best? Why Was this just him going rogue or was this something else? Well, they had all the information and that's proven in a book um, by uh, Ken White, who is the son of Major Maynard E. White, uh, who was the first man to lead a U.S. Uh, forces up to the Arctic. They were there because they were worried about Russians coming over the top, coming over the North Pole. But in terms of navigation and other things like that, they actually were the first people to go and try to find the magnetic North Pole. And while they were doing that, they not only found that it, you know, where it was, but they found that it was moving. They found evidence of past major shifts. They found evidence of tropical corals uh, and then, you know, Arctic-like conditions on top of tropical corals, on top of Arctic-like conditions. And they determined with the help of the Pentagon and the Rand Corporation um, who still does many clandestine things with the United States government. That, uh, and this was 10 years before Charles Hapgood was send, went out to basically collapse the, the science. They determined that every 12,000 years or so, the earth flips over. And it's about a magnetic shift. And they talk about a lot of the same evidence that exists of these shifts that we still have today. And so what we know is, that's the information that they came up with that they had. This guy, Major White, actually took some of the Pentagon papers and gave them to his son to publish after he died. So we actually have their actual drawings and their actual Pentagon writings where they actually knew what was going to happen. So you fast forward 10 years and two things are happening simultaneously. One, 
Charles Hapgood, who was, who was at those meetings, he was making those decisions. He may have made those documents that are in that book. So they knew. He's the guy who went out and gave the preposterous story to collapse the science. At the same time, through the National Science Foundation, the CIA was funding a number of studies that were meant to collapse Charles Hapgood's version of the story and thereby the entire field, none of which would have ever debunked the story that they had and which are in Maynard's, uh, Major Maynard White's son's book, um, which is called World in Peril, by the way. Um, and all of these things are happening and the evidence is so clear how this was done. And then you fast forward to today and you realize all of this digging they've been doing, all of the investment underground, you look at it now and just in the United States, they can probably house 50 to 100 million people underground. Let me tell you, that's not for 10,000 elites. That's not what that's for. They not only see the continuity of the species after this next event, which is ongoing right now, and uh, who knows how long we have till the climax, they see the continuation and the continued dominance of the United States as being a possible thing that we can actually emerge from this as a cohesive society again. Now, whether or not they had the right to make that decision, whether or not they had the right to keep it a secret, you understand why if that's their plan, they have to keep it a secret, but who says they get to make that decision? These are some of the legitimate questions that come from it. But it doesn't change the fact that all of this stuff is real. Morality aside, it's happening. They've been doing it. The CIA had the facts, and then they, in two different ways, attacked the science and made it disappear so that nobody would know about it. And it really wasn't until 2018 and some of the new science that's coming out, and by looking at literally astrophysics, plasma physics, climatology, seismology, paleomagnetism, without looking at all of these things together, there is no way to put this story together. And uh, I don't know that that would have been possible before the information age. It's amazing that that age would rise just before the fall. We better make good use of it while we can. Yeah, no. And, you know, that's, um, man, that's just so interesting that that stuff is going on. And it, it's the kind of, stuff that movies are made of. And, and really, <laughs> some of the things that you're talking about is there are pieces of it, you know? Well, it's like, science fiction writers sh are, are out of a job and they don't know it yet. It's only literally the ignorance of the world that keeps science fiction writers going on right now because this is the most incredible, the most interconnected. You know, you know those movies and at the end you're like, oh my goodness, everything is coming together. Nope, not even close to what's happening right now. It's going to affect everybody. It is life and death. It is the future of our species. And every word of it is real. We are all the stars of this one. What purpose is science fiction anymore, really? It, it, literally just because people don't know what's actually going on. And... Now it's like we have this new twist to the story where somehow it was just, wow, how do people not know this? Now, even if they wanted to know this, all they can see with their minds is protests, coronavirus, protests, coronavirus. Actually, you can't see that behind my mask, coronavirus. The, it, it, this, is, this is a Hollywood movie that we're watching right now, that we're living right now, except it's real. So we're just... We're just waiting for the end of the world, right? The disaster to happen, and, and there you go. 
<laughs> that, uh, you know, one of the things you said in that video is, you know, what would you do in, in, in your life if you thought that, you know, this, right. this was uh, a, a year away or 10 years away or, or 20 years away? Um, you know, you, you can't look at it that way. You got to continue going on and, right. and moving forward um, because we, that's one of the things that, that, I mean, you're continuing to make videos and to share this information, more people that know. Um, what do you suggest is the end game for us? What, what can the normal, the regular day person do as, as we're moving forward here then? What, what are you doing? Let me ask you that. What are you doing as, as we're moving forward? So um, luckily, because at the time, uh, my wife and I had sold our home and we were in the mobile observatory RV traveling the country in 2015, we could basically pick where to go. And my analysis suggested that the second best place on the entire planet in terms of what's going to withstand these changes was an area I called the, the New Valley of the Sun. It's basically the front range, the eastern edge of the Rockies um, in Colorado, New Mexico, and it stretches down into Mexico as well. It starts, uh, I should do a little better than that, shouldn't I? It starts at the Palmer Ridge just north of Colorado Springs, and it goes south through Colorado Springs. It hits uh, regions around Los Alamos, goes through Albuquerque, and uh, south past uh, the Sierra Diablo Mountains where Jeff Bezos' bug out location is located. Um, and boy, does he have an amazing bug out situation. That dude wants to survive. And then it trails off into, into Mexico as well. For those who I'm sure are wondering, well, what's the number one location? It's in Mongolia and I wasn't going there. I don't even, I couldn't imagine how to get the RV across the Pacific. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it, and the, that location, that's simply just a, a weather, earthquakes, volcanoes, climate-based judgment. When you're, there's still the society and, and all the other things that go into it. And so I am here now in the new Valley of the sun. I'm a little further North in the new Valley of the sun than I want to be. I want to be in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I am in Colorado Springs. Um, and so here's, here's the issue. Like you said, you can't let your life fall apart because if the thing's two years away and you lose your job, your house, your family in six months because you've basically gone laser-like focus on this, how does that help you? How does that help your kids or you know, something like that? And so it's tough. It's kind of like now you got to buckle down and try to find a way to actually improve the situation, keep it going, and at the same time, get ready for what's coming. And so that's more than just food and water. And I recommend exercising one's Second Amendment rights, uh, having pre-industrial tools, organic seeds, just in case you need to grow your own food. Um, lots of things, lots of books too. You don't need to have everything in the world for how to survive up here if you've got a lot of books too. But there's also the problem of, there seems to be continental sized waves that come with these catastrophic events. And when you're talking about continental-sized waves, there's only so many ways you can hide. But luckily, this is not going to be a Hollywood-style two-mile-high wave that's just cresting over the entire thing. Think of it more of a fast-moving high tide, where if you weren't paying attention, you know, you could stand there for a couple of minutes and what was at your feet one second could be over your head, you know, a few minutes later. But if you've got a floatable, if you've got something that floats, Heck, nail a couple of pallets together. 
just float away. The number of the evidence of the number of people who just floated away during the last one. Some of these stories are carved on rock. Um, some of them have survived uh, in voice and and tales and mythology as well. Um, the best thing of all is caves up in mountains if you can get to one, um, because there's cosmic rays and potentially impactors from above. Uh, and of course there's the wave as well. And a good thing about a cave is there could be pockets where even if the whole area floods, you know, you've got an air pocket through air pressure. That's going to, you know, you, you put your finger on a straw, you lift it up, you still got the water in there. Um, that kind of idea. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong with just floating away. You just have to figure out that, okay, once you have seen the crest and you start floating, get to land as soon as possible, paddle or do whatever, because otherwise you're going to end up in the middle of an ocean about a day later, and then you're really in big trouble. Man, um, that, that's, so, that's so interesting, man. That's, uh, I tell you what, that, that's uh, some good stuff there. Um, it just makes me want to buy, just get a boat and just put it in my backyard. I mean, you know, not even take it anywhere, just there. Yeah, um, <laughs> I wasn't thinking something like a boat, but some kind of floatable with storage and, uh, you know, something that wasn't completely, something that was more rafted together so that it could shift and it wouldn't, you know, break if there was, you know, some kind of uh, waves or, or it hit something like that. Um, and this is something, if you're good with your hands, you, your imagination's already running. You know, you're not even listening to me right now. Um, <clears throat> and I don't blame you. I'm not saying anything important anyway. Um, <laughs> no. I've, I've said the important stuff already. But, you know, uh, other little things, like mentally preparing for this. The number of people who are going to be deer in the headlights when this happens is unfathomable. You don't have time for that. You don't have time. If you are bugging out somewhere, you don't have time to think about where or go look at a map and plan that out. When that time comes, you probably don't have time to go to the store. You probably don't have time to do anything other than just go into gear, have no fear, and just execute whatever is needed to get you and your family safe. We, we always talk about having a plan, you know, and, and the more that you can, you're familiar with that plan, you're able to, you know, like you said, put it into gear. You're not having to sit there and try to figure it out or problem solve at that moment. You, you know, in any emergency, whatever it is, you want to be able to act and, and act quickly. That's what saves, saves lives. And so, uh, I mean, you're, 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 you know, talking our language here. So right great, great. So, I ask this question all the time, uh, uh, those that I interview, if you were sitting down with someone around the table, drinking a beer or maybe some coffee, what is one thing that you would tell them about your work that would blow them away? And I can't imagine that you would say anything else other than the stuff that you've already said, but, but what is one thing that you would for sure tell someone that you were sitting across the table from? The cause of a very real cyclical Earth disaster is actually an ultra-long period recurrent solar micronova triggered by our galaxy. That, that, you know, and so as they are drinking their beer and then spit it all out, they're going to like, all right, Ben, thanks so much for that. <laughs> Where do we go from there? So that's, uh, 
you know, all the stuff that you said and, and combining all of that, um, man, that's, uh, that would be a great conversation. And, and I'm sure everybody who's listening has so many more questions that they would like to ask you. But I, I have one more question for you. What, what is one question that you've always wanted to answer but never have been asked? You know, I, um, I think it would probably be uh, why I choose the Saturn closest point to Earth every year as my personal holy day and why I drive fast on that day. No food, no water, nothing. Am I supposed to answer the question too? Yeah. You can't leave us hanging like that. <laughs> so if you know you, if you watch, you know, I, we predict earthquakes. There's a lot of people that are actually starting to predict earthquakes using these electric signals. And one of the large scale affect the total earth signals that I use is from the planets. And the part where Saturn is closest to earth every year, that always seems to be a big one. And it just so happens that about a day before my first child was born, based on the fact that Saturn would be at its closest point to Earth and based on a couple of other more localized signals, I suggested that Oceania, which is the air, which is Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, Tonga, and then, you know, all the way over to about Papua New Guinea, uh, you know, Vanuatu, the Solomon Islands, all of those areas down there, um, that's Oceania. Uh, it looked like they were going to have a major uh, uptick in earthquake activity, and I said so based on based on Saturn. You know, Saturn's orbital period is about thirty years, and um, my grandfather, on his thirty, you know, right after his thirtieth birthday, uh, my father was uh, born. When I was born, my father was thirty, and I was thirty years old at the time. And here comes my first child. And Saturn is basically what I was using to predict the timing of major earthquakes. Now, we had known for a long time that we were going to name our daughter Kira. Kira in Sanskrit means beam of sunlight. Ki is Egyptian for earth and Ra, god of the sun. Pretty perfect. But what happened then was the sun unleashed um, a little bit of extra energy. And it was like we had the sun's energy and Saturn's energy affecting us. And I didn't check my phone at the time, but when my wife really started to go into labor, there was a ding on my cell phone. And when I saw my daughter's eyes for the first time, there was another one. And it would be a number of minutes before I would go and see that each was a 6.9 earthquake in Kira Kira, Solomon Islands. Wow. Remember her name is Kira. And yeah. so literally, Upon her entrance, with the thing I've been using and giving credit for striking Earth, the planet with earthquakes, with it as close as possible watching down, he decided to shake my daughter's namesake island twice with 6.9 earthquakes, which is, you know, the 6 point, this 6.9 is, um, you know, there's a reason why hurricanes look like that. Uh, the yin-yang symbol looks like that. It is 
the electromagnetic number. I know that it has another meaning in a sexual context of the last couple of decades. That's not what I'm talking about. This is a real thing. Um, even though I guess the youth have made that a real thing recently, technically, if we want to get technical about it. But no, th there is there was nothing I could say about that. I was literally predicting this exact area, not that specific island, just the Oceania region in general, because of Saturn and... Um, decided not well not just that but let, let's ring kira's island for you there uh twice with the electromagnetic number and so since that time i have known that some of the things that the ancients knew were real um and i've been searching for a lot of what they knew and a lot of their stories have helped with this earth catastrophe cycle as well um and it's why every year and so this is great i get to celebrate the birth of my daughter on a different day every year because the the saturn close approach changes by two weeks every earth year and so uh this year it is on july 21st and um going to going to spend that time fasting as much as i can and uh thinking about how thankful i am for that day that's a great story man I, i'm so glad that you shared that here with us thank you right on so Tell us a little bit about, well, first of all, it, as we close out, tell us a little bit about the Disaster Prediction app. You said that it's in real time. Is that, it, did I hear you correctly on that? Right. So um, <clears throat> oftentimes the solar flare alerts will go out before the solar flare has actually even peaked. Once it goes above a certain threshold, my app is sending an alert immediately. Okay. Um, and so uh, there have been times where the actual peak of the solar flare didn't happen for another hour or so, uh, or another hour and a half. And so uh, these things are, are pretty real time. The same goes for geomagnetic storms, which are what you call the electric effects when those particles come and actually hit the planet. Uh, those are in real time. Earthquake alerts are uh, in real time with, with the data on those as well, uh, hooked into the USGS the Europeans, the, the GeoNet in Australia, pretty much everything like that. And there's also the, uh, what I call manual alerts. I have the ability to go in and type something to you guys. I do not use it very often, as I'm sure you know, maybe, um, know, maybe a couple of times a year. But you know, there are a number of ways I can also tell if we're having a field collapse scenario, if the sun's outer corona is building to the point where it's going to have a micronova, I'm going to probably get a couple of days warning. Um, the disaster prediction app is probably the, the best way to be sure that you're going to know before everyone around you that it's all going down. And after that, you just have to realize that not every single solar flare or not every single geomagnetic storm meets the end of the world. If it's something major, you're going to be getting multiple alerts. They're going to be saying, this is major. I'm going to be telling you manually, this is major. This is it kind of thing. Uh, so you don't make everyone around you think you're crazy beforehand. Um, and that's pretty much as simple as, as the app goes right there. No, it's, it's uh, very well worth the money. I have talked about it before on the, uh, on the podcast. Um, it's definitely, I encourage everyone to, uh, to, to get it. I, um, I've got an Android. I'm, I'm sure you have an iOS uh, version of the, of the app as well. Am, am I correct on that? 
Yes. Okay. Um, and so I had to turn off the earthquakes that were below 6.0 because my, my, my phone was going off all the time. I'm like, yeah, I can't have that. But anytime it's a 6.0, man, I mean, I, it's there and all the other alerts that are there. Definitely. And I do, I do recommend, I, I do recommend that unless people have a reason to be looking for those, turn off some of the lower magnitude earthquakes because the thing will ding you. I mean, if you're looking for that information, it's going to ding you with it every time it happens. Um, so, for example, I don't even have the moderate space weather activity alert set on my phone, mostly because I look at the sun enough to know what the sun is doing. Um, but, you know, I don't even have the, the lowest space weather alert thing set on my phone. I recommend people really be, res uh, you know, restricted with that. And, of course, if they find something's annoying, just go in the settings and turn it off. It's about three clicks away. So yeah, no, definitely, definitely one of the apps that I would would not do without. So uh, with all of that, tell us a little bit about uh, you know what you're doing, where we can find you online, where we can get some right. more information. Uh, you're doing a lot of things. You've got a lot of things going on, and those that are interested in what you're doing, I, I know I want to make it easy for them to be able to get to you. Well, sure. So first, you are correct. There are a lot of things going on in addition to that app. The textbook uh, we have on literally everything we've been talking about on this show. I have a textbook on it. Uh, it's now used in 30 universities. We have websites dedicated to space weather, websites dedicated to the magnetic reversal, to predicting earthquakes, and a number of other things. But this all stems from the free show that we put out every single day on YouTube. And I do mean uh, every single day. Uh, basically, in the very early morning time for the United States, uh, there will be an update on what the sun is doing. There will be an update on weather events, earthquakes, any major volcanoes, and interesting science updates from all of the major academic journals that relate to these topics that we discuss. And you'd be amazed at how much there is to find in some of these journals. It's almost as though some of these professors know what's happening and they're publishing about it. And I will just go ahead and spoil the surprise. There are over 100 professors and folks who work for NASA, NOAA, the National Weather Service, who tune into this material, who have bought the books, who, as I said, are using the books in their classes. Um, and that daily update is really important. It can really get you to another level in just a couple of days of watching and maybe watching some of the background videos. And like I said, that's for free every day on YouTube at the channel Suspicious Observers. And from there, whatever it is, those other things I mentioned you're interested in, you just go right from there and you can find them. Yeah, because you link to them all in every video. Oh, absolutely. Right. There's, the idea is for that to be, this is where all the information is. No matter what part of this you are interested in or all of it, that morning show is where is how you make sure you don't fall behind. Uh, because it's so important, it is free and it's out there every single day. And it is the portal to everything else we do with links below every video uh, telling you how to get there. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely be linking to that. I mean, I've linked to, linked to it so many different times all over the place, but definitely I will be linking to that. Uh, in the show notes so anyone can I, I, I love to make it easy for people I don't know if you've ever if you listen to podcasts and then you go to the to the description you go to the show notes and there's nothing there it drives me nuts and so I'm like I want to provide the links to make it easy for people to get to where they right. need to get to so uh, I'll definitely do that make it easy for everyone and Ben thanks so much man for coming on on uh, the podcast 
Uh, you're doing a great work, and it's a great interview. I greatly appreciate it. Hey, absolutely. It was a good time. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks. Well, all right, everyone. Ben Davidson, man, what an awesome interview, and so good to be able to uh, talk with Ben, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Hey, listen, he talked a little bit uh, about his uh, his daily updates. Make sure that you are subscribed to him over on his YouTube channel, Suspicious Observers. Like always, I'm going to link to it to make it easy for you. Um, I would get that app. That app is is really beneficial. I think it's really important. Um, it's one of those apps that I would always recommend someone to get. So go check out his app. And then I'm going to link to the video that we talked about, The Next End of the World. I'm going to make it very easy for you. But there are so many other videos uh, out there that you, can, uh, that you can watch and to stay up to date with what Ben is doing and all the good information and how we are just this... You know, this one ball revolving and rotating uh, out in space and uh, so many things out there, right? So uh, you have so many other things to think about uh, on top of all the other things that we have going on. So uh, I, again, like I said, I hope you enjoy it. Go check out Ben uh, Ben's YouTube channel and all the other things that he's doing out there online. Well, everyone, that's it for episode 651. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to the show. You can click the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app, or you can head on over to theprepperwebsitepodcast.com. And that way you never miss another episode of Sweet Prepper Goodness. Hey, and don't forget, if you're looking for more preparedness and self-reliant information, head on over to prepperwebsite.com. We link to 8 to 12 articles every single day of the very best articles out there. We also have pages dedicated to alternative news, firearms, DIY, Bible prophecy, frugal living, and homesteading. And lastly, don't forget to join the email list if you haven't. When you do, I'm going to send you a free PDF on 25 handpicked preparedness articles that you should read. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until next week, stay prepped and aware. Peace.